The title of our message today is God's Incredible Promises. I have a subtitle that's connected to the context, and that is salvation comes from a promise and not work, which is Paul's point. We've gotten to the area where Paul is talking theology in the book of Galatians. He went through the first area kind of talking about how he, defending his gospel, his apostleship. And then he gets into this section where it's a very theological section and he's just breaking down arguments. And we're taking small sections and diving into what these arguments are. So his argument in this chapter is going to be that God promised salvation through Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that came along 430 years later, which was the covenant of Moses, the Mosaic covenant, cannot annul the covenant with Abraham because that was a promise. And so we are saved by a promise and not by works under the law. That will be his point, And we will get to that as we make our way through this. Uh, but first of all, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the promises uh, that we find in the Bible. Uh, there have been people who have set out to count the promises that are in the Bible. And that's quite a task, by the way. And it's anywhere, they come up with anywhere from 7,000 to 8,000 uh, because they may count the same promise twice or uh, they may see a promise to an individual and not count it as a promise to mankind. But the idea is how many promises are in the Bible that are from God to mankind and it's around 7,500, which is a pretty amazing number of God putting in his word all of these promises. In fact, God goes out on a limb when he does that because there's all of these documented promises that you and I can trust in, that we can receive, and that we can believe. When I was young in the faith, um, I was challenged to read my Bible daily, which is a good challenge, by the way, especially if you're a brand new in Christ. Make your way all the way through the Bible. And um, I was to read two chapters a day. That's what I was assigned. I was told to underline, to circle, and star which is just good, highlighters, right? Have a highlight, highlight, circle, underline, look for things that really mean something to you. All of that was great advice. But probably some of the best advice I got for that was to underline every promise that I came across. That as I'm making my way through the Bible, I'm looking for promises. And then I was to write a P in the margin next to the promise that I underlined or highlighted, whatever it was that I was doing. What was really interesting is how many P's there were in the margin once I made my way through the book of Matthew. There are so many promises that God gives. And the scripture declares that God will keep his promises. Now, I don't know that we need that. If God is good, if he's unchanging, if God doesn't lie, then we know we can, we, we can count on his promises. But the Bible tells us in two different places. One of them is Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man, which simply means human in this case, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will not do? Or has he spoken and will not make good? So he's just asking us that question. Is God going to speak and not do it? All of us would go, no, God wouldn't do that. If he's going to say it, he's going to bring it about. And I love Isaiah 55, 11. It's the passage that says that God's word will not return back void. Listen to it in context. So shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and shall prosper in the things which I sent it. 
So when God gives a promise, he's got a purpose for it. He sends it out to be able to accomplish those very things. Second uh, Peter 1, 4 tells us that the promises of God are exceedingly great and precious. And I like that. The promises of God are exceedingly great and precious. Listen to what Peter says. By which we have been given, or by which, uh, let me read what it says, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So God's purposes for the promises that he gives us is that we would be partakers of his divine nature, that we would learn more about God. We would be walking the way God wants us to, to walk and we would escape the corruption of the world. So God's promises have a distinct purpose according to 1 Peter. Let me give you some categories of or examples of categories of promises we find in the Bible. The Bible tells us, gives us promises that we are gonna, uh, that there is rest for the weary. For example, Jesus said, come unto me, all of you who are weary, and I will give you rest. He gives promises that he's going to help those in need. The Bible says that God is an ever-present help in a time of need. And in Hebrews, that we can go boldly to the throne to find help in a time of need. The Bible promise us, promises us that God always loves us. We'll read that verse here in a few moments. But nothing can separate us from the love of God. God always loves us. The Bible says that God is always good. He's unchanging. He will always be good. And there's so much there because if God changes and he's not good and we've been following what is a good God, the promise that he's good and will always be good is powerful. The Bible promises us in several different passages that we will be given peace. The Bible says that God will always answer us. Call out to the Lord and he will answer you. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. The Bible tells us that God is always with us. Where can you go to hide from the presence of the Lord? Jesus said, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. The Bible promises us that God is kind and compassionate. Not only is he good, but he's kind and compassionate. I remember as a child getting in trouble and wondering how my dad was going to react. I remember just getting that fear of having to tell my dad or getting caught by my father because I didn't know that my dad was going to be kind and compassionate. But you can go to God with your failures. You can go to God with your sin and you can seek forgiveness because God is kind and compassionate. The Bible promises us that. Uh, he works out all things for our good, right? Romans 8, 29. He is not promising us that bad things are never going to happen to us. I wish that was there, right? We kind of got the opposite. The Bible says, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. But God says, I will work all things out together for the good to those who love me or to those, yeah, who love the Lord. Uh, the Bible promises strength to the weak, that we will be strengthened. Do you feel weak? Do you feel insufficient? The Bible promises strength. The, the Bible promises just a few more to meet our needs not our wants, but our needs, to give eternal life, to give joy, and we could go so on and so forth. With 7,500 promises in the Bible, those are just a few categories of the things that we find promises in. Now, many of the promises are conditional. 
That is that God tells us that we have to do something in order to receive the promises. Some of the promises are non-conditional. God just says, I will do this. I was going to say, I like the, the non-conditional promises, but the truth is I like both of them because it's like a point of faith. If God says, do this and I will do that, then we can say, you know what? Then I'm going to do this so I can receive that promise. It's like stepping out in faith to be able to receive what God has. I'll give you a few examples of conditional promises. You're going to know this one, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. When it comes to what we should do, uh, what, what kind of decision should I make for my life? Do I want to do what my heart says? Do I want to do what feels comfortable to me or what feels best? We can't really trust our heart, the Bible says. So trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Instead of trusting in your heart, don't lean on your own understanding because we could be deceived by our own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him. That is pray and seek him in all your ways. And he promises that he will direct your path, that you'll end up making good decisions. That's really good, especially when you have to make a decision. John 15, seven is another conditional promise. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Now, again, I like that as a conditional promise because if you abide in Christ and his word abides in you, then your desires are gonna be godly. If you're not abiding in Christ and his word is not abiding in you, then who knows what your desires are gonna be. If you are abiding in the world and following what the world is teaching, then you're gonna have different desires. But the conditional promise that if I abide in Christ and his word abides in me, I can ask whatever I desire. Your desires are gonna be met because your desires are gonna become more godly. James 4, 7, final conditional promise. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. A promise that you will overcome the devil, you've got two parts, submitting to God and resisting him, and he'll flee from you. The Bible tells us that we're supposed to pray in the Lord's Prayer, God, deliver us from the evil one as well. Now, there are many non-conditional promises, and I really like this. It's where God says, I will do this, and he doesn't lay any condition on us at all. He's just going to do it. An example of this is with Abraham, we're going to talk about Abraham once we get into our text today. And this is Genesis 12, 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your descendants, I will give the land. This is very early on when Abram is called. And God says to Abram, uh, to your descendants, I will give this land. He doesn't give him any conditions. Abram, if you follow me, Abram, if you're obedient to me, God just says, I will do it. Abram's response and there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. God appeared, gave him the promise that to his descendants he would give the land and, and Israel it belongs to the descendants of Abraham to this day. Matthew 28, 20, in the Great Commission, we have another uh, unconditional promise from God. This is to us as the church. He says, this is the very last verse of Matthew, by the way, teaching them to observe all the things that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. 
No conditions on Jesus being with you. Wherever you are, Jesus is there with you. Wherever you go, you can call out upon his name. There is no place that you cannot be separated from God. Years ago, I made that statement. Somebody came up to me and said, what if you're in a strip club? Can you call out upon God? Is he going to, is he going to respond if you call out to him there? The answer is yes. What if you're in rebellion and, and something happens and you decide, what am I doing? And you call out to God. God is right there. Even to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, Athenians would be people in Athens. Even to the Athenians, Paul said, God is not far from each of us. To these who were living in Athens in the days of Paul, who hadn't learned much about the true and living God, he said that God has placed you in times and places so you would grope for him because he is not far from any of us. That's an unconditional promise. Wherever we go, we can call on the name of the Lord. Let me give you one more. This is Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor power, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. You can't do anything to separate yourself from the love of God. And no one can do anything to separate you from his love. Doesn't matter how bad you've been. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter what you've said. God still loves you. And God will treat you like a loved child when you respond properly to God, which is really powerful. Now, how do you and I inherit the promises of God? How do we inherit all of the promises? Here in Hebrews 6.12, well, of course, we get that great list of people who by faith uh, walked with God in Hebrews chapter 12. But here in Hebrews 6.12, it says that you may not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. Sometimes I wish it didn't say by faith and patience we inherit it. I don't mind the faith part. Faith is, faith is believing God enough to do what he says and to trust him. So receiving the promises by faith, fine. I like that. It's the, it's the, the um, patience part that gets me. I wish it said by faith and immediately you will receive the promises of God. Because if God gave us 7,500 promises and I have to have patience in order to receive them, that might mean that I'm asking for some things right now. I'm grabbing onto God's promises for my life right now, but they're not coming about right now. And God's like, be patient. I'm reminded of what it says later on in this book. Don't grow weary in doing good for in due season, you will receive if you do not faint. So through faith and patience, we receive the promises. Let me give you a resource. I've used this resource before. And I think it's really good. I had this when I was a teenager. I've got a copy of it now. I tried to find my copy so I could hold it up to you, but I can't find it. In fact, I have several copies uh, because I've, I've had people give them to me over the years. Uh, but it's David Wilkerson's little book called the Jesus, uh, the Jesus Pocket Promise Book. And the subtitle is 800 Promises from the Word of God. And it's a little book that has 800 promises in it out of the 7,500 that are in the Bible. And when I was 
when I was a, a teenage Christian, I'd get ready to go to bed at night and I hadn't read my Bible, right? And I was kind of a little bit legalistic then. I think we should read the Bible. I think we should read the Bible regularly. I think reading the Bible daily is a good thing. But I felt like if I didn't read my Bible at night, then God was angry at me. So I would pick up the little Jesus pocket promise book and I'd flip through it. I'd read a couple of promises. It was kind of the lazy man's devotional. I'd flip through it and read a couple of promises. And I'm not suggesting it for that. I'm suggesting it as a resource that you could put by your bed and you could pick it up, not in a replacement of studying the Word of God or reading the Word of God, underlining it, marking it, just really pour, you know, reading God's Word daily. But, but when you need encouragement, just to flip through that little book is a powerful thing and it's a really good resource. All right, let's pick up Galatians 3, 15 through 18 and we'll take a look at how he uses promises here in this text to talk to us about the fact that we're not under the law, that we're not under works. Remember, there were these legalists that had crept in secretly among them, had uh, taken away their liberty in Christ and had put them under bondage. And the Galatians, which were churches in that region, had believed the false gospel. And Paul is upset. And so now Paul gets into this theological section and it seems like he settled down a little bit. When he was the personal portion of the letter, he's really upset and he's gonna be upset again by the end. But it seems like he settled down a little bit here. And he says in 315, this is a new little section. He says, brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, Yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. So in the ancient world, if you wanted to make a covenant with someone, if you wanted a contract with someone, you would make a covenant with them. And you would take an animal. And this, by the way, wasn't only Israel. This was other cultures that did it as well. They would take animals or an animal, depending on how large the covenant was, and they would cut the animals in half. They would divide them out and then you would pass through something like this where you were saying whatever part of your covenant was to the person, your contract was. Then they would pass through the animals saying they're part of the contract. And the idea, I think, at least what I would take away from that is, this is such an important covenant that you and I are making together that we've killed animals and there's blood all over the ground and we're walking between the parts of the body that kind of like, if I don't keep this covenant, this will happen to me, kind of thinking. Whatever the thinking was, it wouldn't be a pleasant thing to make this kind of a covenant with people. And so what Paul is saying is, I'm talking from human terms, when humans make a covenant, it cannot be annulled. It's unbreakable. That was a contract in their day. Now today we say, when someone says, well, you know, I was gonna buy that house and then they backed out of it, and you say, well, did you have a contract? Were, were they under contract? Because to us, that's binding. I don't know that we have anything that is unbreakable. Maybe we do. And, and maybe, this won't, maybe this is a touchy subject to bring up, but it would be student loans. Even though they're talking about forgiving certain student loans, when they talk about forgiving student loans, by the way, they talk about a small amount and only to those who are under a certain level. And that level oftentimes is pretty low, like 30 or 40, if you make less than 30 or $40,000, they're gonna forgive $10,000 worth of student loans. Well, that's almost poverty level anymore, 20 or $30,000, and $10,000 makes up a small part of what student loans are anymore. Talking about ones that are made today because schools uh, have so much money. 
But anyway, my point is that if you file bankruptcy, your student loan stays. You cannot get out from under your student loan. You have it forever or until somebody forgives it, all right? But that's the idea, that even with men, a covenant cannot be broken. So there, are, there were unilateral covenants and there were bilateral covenants. So a unilateral covenant was a one-sided covenant. One person went into a covenant with another person, but they took all of the responsibility. I will do these things for you. A bilateral covenant was both people passing through the parts of the, 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 the severed animals and making commitments to yourself. And so God made a bilateral, excuse me, a unilateral covenant with Abram. When God had, God, in what is it, a, um, Genesis 15, God tells Abraham that he's going to bless his descendants and he's going to give them the land. And he has Abraham cut up several animals, a bull, a lamb, a dove, maybe another animal in there. And he has them lay the parts out. And then he fights off the, the, the vultures. So he's waiting for God to show up after he's divided the animals and he has to fight off the vultures. And it gets so late that he falls asleep. And while he's in this dream, awake state, you can read it yourself on the way it words it, God shows up gives him the covenant and God says, I will do this. And God passes through the animals by himself. Abraham never has to pass through them. So when Paul starts to talk about the covenants, he's talking about the covenant that God made with Abraham. If you study the covenants in the Bible, this is the Abrahamic covenant. And it was God that did the covenant. Abraham had no part. Abraham had no promises. There was nothing that Abraham had to do. It was an unconditional promise, an unconditional covenant. When we think about covenants, listen to what it says in Psalms 105.8. He remembered his covenant, or he remembers his covenant forever. The word which he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant which he made with Abram and his oath to Isaac, this is Psalms 105.8, and confirmed it with Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant. This is the covenant that he made with Abraham. Psalms 105 says, is an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as an allotment of your inheritance. So what is the everlasting covenant that he made with Abram? That he was gonna give him the land forever. Isaiah 54 10 says, for the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. Again, Isaiah would have been talking about the Abrahamic covenant, not the Mosaic covenant. So when a covenant is made between men, it can't be annulled. That's Paul's point. That's his first point. First building block for his theology. The second is this, verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made to you and your descendants. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as to one, as to your seed, who is Christ. So in other words, when in, in Genesis 22, and we're gonna read this in a minute, in Genesis 22, where God says to Abram, 
I'm going to bless all nations through your descendant. That he doesn't mean descendants. He means descendant. That the Messiah, that's Christ. And that's what he says here. And to your seed, who is Christ? And Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. So he's saying God's going to bless the entire world through Abraham, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were all told that the world was going to be blessed through them. All nations would be blessed through them. And that is through one descendant, which is Christ. In Genesis 22, 15 through 19, here, here's what it says. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abram a second time out of heaven. Now, in Genesis 22, Abram has been told to take his son, his only son, go to a mountain that I will show you and sacrifice your son on this mountain. Now, atheists and critics love to point out this verse. You're going to follow a God who told a man to sacrifice his son? And don't you understand that people in the ancient world sacrificed their children to false gods? And your God told Abraham to sacrifice your son? And I'm persuaded when they do that, they haven't read the text. They don't know what's happening. They just, and, and, and don't, don't shrink back from defending that position. Because when you go to, to Genesis 22, the very first thing it says is that God wanted to test Abraham. It's a test, first of all. We know that from the very beginning of the account. Of the, uh, the account. And then he said, take your son, your only son. He had had Ishmael, but Ishmael was gone. And now only Isaac lived with him. Take your only son, go to the mountain that I will show you. And when he says only son, it reminds us that God so loved the world, he gave his, one, his only begotten son. Go to the mountain I will show you, which we know is Moriah, which is where the Temple Mount would eventually be. And Jesus would be crucified at the foot of Moriah. God would sacrifice his son on the very mountain that he took Abraham to. And on the way, Isaac said, Dad, we have the fire, we have the wood, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham said, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And that's the way it's worded in Hebrew. God will provide himself a sacrifice. I think that Abraham was prophesying at that point. God will provide himself. He will become the sacrifice. And so he gets up there, ties Isaac up, puts him on the altar. Isaac, by the way, is somewhere around 30 years old at this point. My joke at this point is always that Isaac could have said, you know what, you've lived a long life, Dad. Why don't we sacrifice you instead? But he submitted to the will of his father, like Jesus submitted to the will of the father. Jesus said, I always do what my father asks me to do. And I have done it all, all the way to the cross. He submitted all the way to the death of the cross. And so Isaac submitted to the will of his father as Jesus submitted to the will of the father. And when he pulled back the knife, was ready to kill him. We know what was going on in Abraham's head because Hebrews tells us that he thought God promised that nations would be blessed through Isaac. If he kills Isaac now, he has to raise him from the dead. Go look it up yourself. Hebrews chapter 11, the section on Abraham. In Abraham thought God will have to raise him from the dead. So God would have his son die on that mountain and God would raise him from the dead. But when he pulled back the knife, an angel stopped him and said, don't sacrifice your son. Now I know you will do what I ask you to do, which God knew already. This whole thing is a picture of Christ. 
found in the Old Testament. And then, uh, then there's a ram in the thicket. He sacrifices the ram in the thicket. And then God says this to him. This is what God says. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessings, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which are on the seashore. Now, immediately you recognize this as a non-conditional covenant, with a non-conditional promise, right? God says, you've done this, but now I will, I will, I will. I'll give your descendants. They'll be as the sand of the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed, all nations of the earth shall be blessed. That's what he's making a reference to. Now, the word for seed here is the same word that's used earlier where he uses the word seed. But context, Paul is going to give us context. So he says, in you, all the nations, in your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young man and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt in Beersheba. So the promise to Abraham looked like descendants ended up really being descendant, which we know because Paul gives us the interpretation in scripture. It's the same word for descendant in the Hebrew. I was interested today in what the Septuagint said, but I couldn't find it and how the Septuagint did it, but I couldn't find it. But let me read 16 again. Now to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made. He does not say to seeds as to many, but one and to your seed who is Christ. And so the promise was that through his seed, the entire, all the nations would be blessed. So in verse 17, he goes on. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, so Abraham offers up Isaac and receives this promise from God. Then 430 years later, here's Moses. And Moses brings the law. And we now have the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of Moses, which is the law. And this covenant is a completely different covenant. This covenant is, if you will keep my commands and obey my words, I will bless you. If you will not obey my words, I will curse you. And then he asked all the people to say amen. And all the people said amen. If you ever have that choice from God, if you will do everything I say, I'll bless you. If you don't do it, I'll curse you. I need an amen from you. Don't do it. Don't say amen. Because what if you don't do it? Then you're under a curse. That was the Mosaic law. And so he says, 430 years later, um, it says, uh, let me read it again, verse 17. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant which was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. In other words, the law being a covenant can't annul the covenant that was made 430 years earlier that was made through Christ, that was confirmed through Christ. So you and I are saved by a promise, the promise to Abraham that all nations would be blessed through the seed. We're not saved 
by keeping the law. Now, here's the thought that enters your mind. It's the thought that enters into my mind. And for those of you who are following me here, I think it's the thought that entered into your mind. Then why have the law at all, right? If we already had salvation through the Abrahamic covenant, why do we have to have the Mosaic covenant? And I'm really glad you asked that because that's next week. In verse 17, he says, and thus I say that the law, it's almost like he heard us thinking that. When we, we hear that and we go, well, if the law couldn't annul the covenant with Abraham, then why do we have the law? And thus I say that the law, which I already read that, um, which is 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant, right? Um, let me read you Exodus uh, 19, five and six. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my commandments, and you shall be a special treasure to me for all people, for all the earth is mine. You shall be my kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So that was the promise that if they would keep it, they'd be blessed. But then there was also a promise that if they didn't keep it, they were going to be cursed. So then he says in verse 18, for if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now, as I said, he's going to talk about the purpose of the law next week. So let's just set that aside. We'll cover it next. Or you can read it yourself a little bit later on. We're almost done. You probably won't have time to read it before I finish. Okay. But it's the next little section that he talks about why the law was necessary. But in verse 18, again, here's this point. You've got two covenants. For if the inheritance is of the law, the second covenant, if you've got to go out and keep the law and do works, it is no longer of a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. In other words, we are saved by a promise and not by the law. So when the legalist tries to get you to do works in order to keep your salvation or to add to your salvation, any, any, any verbiage you would use would do damage to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. There's nothing that you can add. It doesn't mean that we don't do things for God. It means we don't do things for God to get saved or to keep our salvation or to go deeper or to get more. I'm more saved than you. Because I followed Jesus and then I kept the, 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 the dietary restrictions of the law. Therefore, I'm deeper or closer to God than you are. All of that does violence to the gospel. The gospel is clear. We receive Christ through the promise. And the world is full of legalists. The world is full of people who want to lay trips on you and say, you just can't. You think, they call it easy believism. You think you can just believe and be saved? My answer to their sarcastic question is yes. I believe that because that's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus said. If you believe in me, you will not die in your sins. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you will live. If you die and believe in me, you will still live. The Bible over and over again tells us this truth. We do not have to keep any part of the law, any section of the law. 
we have been freed from the law and we're just getting, this is just getting warmed up. Paul's going to come to the place where he finally tells us the purpose of the law and that we no longer have need of it. It fulfilled its purpose. There was a reason for it. It fulfilled it. We are no longer under it. Don't exchange the promise of God for salvation to the Mosaic law for salvation. And don't, and, and again, I'm going to go back to what I've been saying the whole time we're in Galatians, that I think that the legalists, the, the, that what they like about it so much and what, how they try to get people trapped in it is pride. You think you're just saved by believing in Christ? Well, I've done more. I found what you've really got to do to really be saved. And that's why the Bible says we're saved by grace through faith. And when we go down to the definition of, of grace, you're saved by undeserved favor, by faith, by believing in Christ, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It tells us that pride comes with this idea of works. And I think that's why we always come back to it. You've got to go to church on Saturday. You've got to keep the, the Sabbath in order to really be saved. You've got to be baptized in order to really be saved. You've got to go to our church in order to really be saved. You've got to speak in tongues to really be saved. You've got to be baptized in the name of Jesus to really be saved. All of those, all of those and more do damage to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the promise of salvation, which is God saying, receive it. God is the one who passed through the, the animals with Abraham. And it is God who went to the cross and shed his blood there. Now, in closing, we have another covenant. Besides the fact that we had the Abrahamic covenant and then the Mosaic covenant that was after that, and the Mosaic covenant doesn't annul the Abrahamic covenant, you and I have a new blood covenant. Jesus said at the Last Supper, this is the covenant. He picked up the cup. This is the covenant of my blood. He, we entered into a new covenant with him. We are not under the law because of the covenant of Abraham, but also because of the new covenant that we are under, which doesn't put us under the law. And we'll get more of that as we make our way through Galatians. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you, first of all, for your promises, that you've given us your promises, that you spoke these promises to Abraham. He heard them. He worshiped you. He believed the promises that you gave him, and it was accounted to him righteousness. And you made that covenant with him that you would never forget it. And Lord, that we are children of Abraham who believe. And Lord, we do believe that salvation is easy for us. It was very difficult for you. But anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we call on your name. Thank you that you have saved us. Thank you that we couldn't do any work for it because we would take credit for it. But you did all of the work and we received the benefits by believing and receiving and standing in your word. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.